We're going to start in verse 14. Mark chapter 9. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted them. And he asked them, what are you arguing with them about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him immediately, it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I know that it has the ability to cut deep, to cut like a surgeon cuts in an effort to repair. And I pray that this morning we would see it do just that, that your word would speak to us in ways that no other text in the world can speak to us. And that we would see that this is living, and it's breathing, and it's active in our lives. And I pray that you would use it to make us better, not for our own sake, but for your glory. That you would be worshipped by the people in this room because of what we discover in your word this morning. I thank you already for how just reading it, it can show so many things. It can open so many things in our minds and our hearts. And I pray that we see it happen today in a way that's totally out of the ordinary. So that it's not just something we do on a Sunday morning, but it's a gathering of your people to worship you for the God your scripture clearly declares you to be. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. I love you guys. I don't know if you know that, but I do a lot. And I hope I demonstrate that often. And I I say that like unplanned. I just say that because I want you to know it. And being here and worshiping with you on Sundays is a joy in my life. And so I really desire that to be the case for everyone that would join us. And so if it's not, please talk to me about it. I'm not going to like try to make you happy, but I want to help you. I want you, I want to help you feel loved. So anyway, uh, this past Wednesday, I had an opportunity to speak at Northeast Baptist school, which is on the, off the interstate. It's actually very difficult to get to if you've ever tried to get there. 
do I turn here? I don't know exactly. You can see it from the interstate, but once you get back there, you get lost. It's weird. Anyway, uh, they have a chapel service. It's a Baptist school, so they have a chapel service. And they asked me to go. I didn't know I'd be speaking to elementary kids. So I had to like, revamp real quick. Uh, but uh, it ended up being really uh, a great time with them. I just shared the gospel and how the gospel works in our lives and how everyone has a story and how paths intersect. Uh, and we learn other people's stories, but ultimately the desire is that we learn the story of God because that's why we were created. And then I asked them if they have questions, and tons of questions. It was amazing. Like more than probably any group I've ever spoke to. And I, do you have questions? It's usually, all right, I'll pray then. Uh, but these guys were like, I got a question. And most of them were like something learned in Bible class, I guess, totally unrelated. They were just trying to challenge me. It was weird. Uh, but one girl asked a question that, I mean, she's a fifth grader, and, and so it was, it was surprising, but she said, it's not a question I haven't heard, it's just surprising from a fifth grader. She said, why do people suffer? It's a great question. It's a question that philosophers have wrestled with forever. Uh, so I tried to answer it just like you're supposed to, I mean, I, from a ph- philosophical point of view, and then she pressed the question, the conversation went on, but I'm not going to go into the, the exact dialogue, but Considering the question for us this morning, I think it's a fair question for anyone to ask. If God is good and he's all powerful, sovereign over all things, why do people suffer? It doesn't seem good. In fact, every time something bad happens, it's the first question. Where's God? Can't be a God. All right. And everyone asks that. And it, and it is fair, only philosophically, it's quickly resolved if you just add an, an additional premise. Not only is God all-powerful and good and sovereign over all things, but he's also all-knowing. He knows everything, more than we know, so he would know what's best for us. And so for him to define what's good, being that he knows everything, sometimes it must be that suffering is necessary for there to be good. That, and we experience that in life. We go through difficult things, and we can look back and see, I can see how I grew from that. I can see how it was for my good. So we, we come to this understanding that all that our God is doing all things for our good, for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. That's Scripture. We see it theologically. We see it philosophically. But resolving the question logically doesn't resolve the problem. In, in philosophy, we call it the problem of evil. And we can solve it in our heads like that. Just add another premise. Well, He knows what's best. So He is good. Everything He does is good. Because He defines it. But the emotion's still there. And, and that's the bigger problem. That's where this girl was pressing. And if we're honest, pain and suffering is real, and it's pretty cruddy, even if it's for our good. In the midst of it, it's miserable. It's horrible. Fixing it in our head doesn't really fix it. And so we're all in this. If you're like me, then you're, you're overwhelmed by life often. And perhaps pain and suffering physically and emotionally has challenged you throughout your life. And maybe right now and you're feeling hopeless and failure at things leaves you feeling hopeless. And responsibility is a weight that you hate carrying and just weighs on you always. And going nowhere in life, never meeting that person you're going to marry, never having kids, never getting that job you want. These thoughts of our future fills us with doubt. How can God be good? And we wrestle with it and we're like, well, philosophically, he's for my good, so I'm going to hang in there. 
It's not enough, if we're honest. That's not enough. And I'm just wanting to be honest, like we usually are. And maybe it's enough for you. The passage we're looking at today that we just read addresses this very problem in a profound way. And maybe you didn't see it, and we're going to look closer. But it's on display for us to see that not only is is God good as he fixed the problem philosophically, but he's done enough. And it, it requires something of us. And it's, it's more than there's this emphasis on Jesus having power over creation, which we've seen in the book of Mark so far. It's more than that. It's, it's how do we access that power? Faith, it's belief, it's dependence on the only hope we have. And a humility that would drive us to admit we're insufficient, but Christ is sufficient. That we're, in, we're not omnipotent. He is. We're, we're incredibly impotent. But we have an omnipotent God. And when he, is, when he is making his power available to us, it changes that problem that we have. So Christ has done everything necessary. And we're going to hopefully see that more clearly. The one in which we place our faith, not having faith, but the one in which we place our faith changes everything. And Christ has left his throne of splendor and glory and come to earth compassionately and empathetically to dwell with us and suffer with us and rescue us from that suffering. And so last week we saw uh, Peter, James, and John join Jesus on this mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration. And, and he was transfigured into this glorious being and and. Moses and Elijah showed up and the party was going and it was an amazing spiritual retreat and they come down from the mountain. After, after seeing the glory of the king, they come down from the mountain into a dark pit of despair we call earth. And the suffering is immediately in their face. But from holiness, they're greeted with conflict and the destructive evil of our world. And so let's pick it up in verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him and asked them, and he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? So Jesus sees the brokenness and he enters in as he always does. He's entered in, became a man, uh, and he's entered into many lives along the way, those suffering uh, with many different ailments, and he's touched the sick, and he's dined with the sinners, he's been there with them in the brokenness, and he shows up, and there's this excitement immediately among the people, they see him, and they run to him, the disciples are there, but they've failed, and we'll see that in just a minute, and the people see Jesus, and hope fills them, they immediately, it says, they immediately, when they saw him, were amazed and ran to greet him. It's, it's as if his very presence draws them in. And he finds the scribes arguing theology and religion with the disciples. We don't know exactly what they were arguing, but we can speculate uh, pretty accurately that they're talking about demon possession and casting out demons because that's what's going on here. And so they're totally missing the fact that this man is there desperate for help. And they're having this sidebar conversation about whether or not you can do that. As the scribes are always doing, trying to discredit Jesus and his disciples are there. Jesus isn't in the picture right now. It's just nine of his guys and it's not even the favorite three. It's just nine of them. The scribes are like, just jump on this. 
They start an argument trying to disprove Jesus, which, which they always fail at, but they're going to keep at it. So, uh, because the, they're only there to disprove and defame Jesus, when he shows up and asks them this question, they don't say anything. They've failed at this before. They're not answering his question when he says, what are you arguing about? They're too busy not being compassionate to have time to have to deal with this compassionate guy. He's always worried about emotions and helping people. We're trying to discuss theology over here. And the disciples are probably embarrassed that they failed, so they don't answer either, but someone does. It says in verse 17, and someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And we'll find out there's much more going on. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams, grinds his teeth, becomes rigid. So he asked, so I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. So the spirit is a demon. And this immediately tells us some things about demons. First of all, they exist. I don't know if you had doubts. They exist. Not just in costume form. This time and they're terrifying. In fact, that's why we use them in horror films. They're terrifying. And Jesus is affirming in this interaction that he believes they exist as he has before casting out demons. But, but this is something a little more in front of everyone in the crowd. There's a, a crowd around. The demon is demonstrating he's capable of taking control and inflicting physical suffering on this boy who's defenseless and a desperate father who just wants to see his son healed. Matthew call, does a parallel of this story. He calls it epilepsy. And that appears to be what it is. This demon is inflicting epileptic seizures on this boy. And that he's likely a teenage boy because in a minute, Father addresses the fact that he's been dealing with this since childhood. So he's had some years dealing with it. And, and human strength is, is effort. I mean, there's no effort they can put forth to stop it. Human strength is nothing compared to the power, the supernatural power of this demon. The authority that Jesus gave the disciples back in Mark 6 to cast out demons somehow worn off or something, something weird's going on, and they're trying their hardest to get this demon out, and they can't do it. The gospel accounts, they, have, they make a definite distinction between illness and demon possession. But for some reason here, it's kind of intermingled. And there's the intermingling of demon possession and epilepsy in this passage. And so it could be easy for us to get off on a tangent and talk about Demonology. Let's talk about demons for an hour because they're interesting. Uh, but I think that's a distraction. It's just as distracting as the Pharisees or the scribes talking with the disciples about it. That's not the point of this passage. There's a man here in need. He wants his son delivered from this demon. And Jesus is about to address it. First he says, what are you arguing about? As if to say, it's a waste of time. Let's not talk about whether or not you can cast out demons. Let's address the demon in the room, so to speak. This can easily become a distraction. I'm not going to let it be a distraction this morning, uh, but I do believe demon possession is a real thing. I don't think we deal with it as much in our culture, uh, likely because Satan has many other options. There's tons of idols in our country. You can distract someone with Xbox. You don't need to possess them with a demon. You know what I'm saying? So I went to Africa in 2008, I think, yes, 2008. Uh, and there were, there were people possessed by demons there. And it was scary. 
I mean, I, I was a college student. I knew that it was a thing. I grew up in somewhat of a charismatic background, so people talk about it a lot. Um, not so much in the Baptist circles, but it's real. In fact, a lady there, uh, she was in her 90s, was a witch doctor in this particular village, and she was she had many demons, and the, the interpreters we were with had prayed with her, and she'd seen Christ, and she wants Jesus, and so demons flee this woman, horrifying, and she's baptized while I'm in Africa, and there as a college student, I'm thinking all this stuff, and this is cool, and now I look back and wish I would have been in awe, because that's incredible. So instead of being filled with doubts, like this isn't real, how could that happen? This is something that's real. So it's probably more common in countries where they don't have anything and Satan is attacking. Uh, but it's certainly a real thing. But like I said, we've already wasted two or three minutes more than I wanted to on that topic. We're, it's not about the demon here. It's not even about the sickness here. In fact, a major theme of Mark is this idea that human hopes are exhausted and then we realize our hope should be in Christ. And that's the focus of this passage. This father is no doubt suffering the torment of not being able to do anything to save his son. Being a father, I feel this weight. If anything is assaulting my son, if anyone is assaulting my son, and I can do nothing about it for years, the torment of that is what this real man in history is feeling. He's, un- he's unnamed. But he's a real person dealing with real pain and real suffering in the midst of a crowd who's doing nothing about it but arguing whether or not it's possible to help. And so Jesus shows up. And he's no doubt exhausted his bank account trying to find cures and sought after help from as many people as he could. And now he hears of Jesus and his disciples. He brings them to the disciples and they fail. The hope that was there is now gone. And then Jesus shows up. So maybe there's this glimmer of hope. And he tells Jesus the problem. And in verse 19, we hear the response. And Jesus answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. This may not be what you were expecting. I think that we first have to ask, who's he responding to? What's he, who's he talking to? He's not, he's not just talking to his father. And it says he answers them. So maybe the scribe or the disciples, I think it's likely he's talking to everyone around. In fact, it's reminiscent of Moses coming down from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments, finding the Hebrews worshiping an idol. And it's this faithless generation. How can, for just a moment he's away, how can they so quickly lose faith? And it's not, it's not even he's disappointed. It's, I'm right here. I'm with you. I'm bearing with you. How long do you have to see this? Do you see I'm all you need? I'm where you place your faith. How long are you going to keep turning to other things and getting distracted by unnecessary things? I'm right here. It's this compassion. It's a rebuke, yes. But a rebuke from Jesus is filled with grace. He's desiring them to turn to truth. They're hopeless and unable without Him. And he quickly follows it with a command of compassion. Bring him to me. How comforting that must be. With confidence, he says, bring him to me. With compassion, with an extension of grace, he says, 
bring him to me. To this father who's searched for a solution. He's finally before Jesus. And he hears this command, bring, bring the boy to me. In verse 20, they brought him to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? So imagine with me the, the scene. I want, I want to feel like we're there. We're feeling the desperation of this Father. And Peter, James, and John are coming off of this spiritual high with Jesus. And they're trying to catch up, figuring out what's going on. And, and Jesus is there knowing all things, knowing the situation. Knew He would walk into this. Knowing what to address in, in everyone's heart at the moment. And then there's the nine disciples who likely feel ashamed, embarrassed that they've failed. And they're obeying and bringing the boy. And, and then there's the scribes who are just kind of hoping something goes wrong so they can jump in there just with faces disapproving of everything going on, standing to the side. And, and there's this father before the Savior of the world and has no idea what he's about to experience. And there's this boy violently turning, uncontrolled, stiffened out, foaming at the mouth. The crowds staring at it all happening. And Jesus says, how long has this been happening? And the father answers, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fires and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. It may seem irrelevant or even uh, insensitive for Jesus to, to say how, in the midst of all this, how long has this been happening? But I think it's a demonstration of compassion here. I mean, consider the fact that this father, desperate for help, is having this opportunity to bear his heart to Jesus. He's sharing his story. He's sharing his experience. Just think about the pain and suffering you've experienced. Opportunities to share that with someone who cares. And he's, he's telling it to the one who cares more than anyone. The creator of the world, the creator of the universe is standing before him, asking him to share his heart. And his father's pouring out his pain. His, his son has been suffering. This demon has assaulted him and tried to destroy him in fire. Tried to drown him in water. Since childhood, he's been suffering. And Jesus is asking to hear this man's heart. And he offers the same to us. We can go to Jesus with anything. We can confess. We can we can see he's compassionate and he's willing and he's able. And notice the father has already sensed the compassion in Jesus. And he, when he makes his request, and if, you'll just, if you'll just be compassionate, if you'll just help us. You might remember in Mark chapter 1, the leper who went to Jesus and he says, Lord, I know that, I know that you can, but will you heal me? And Jesus, seeing the faith of the man, knowing that he can, heals him. But this father's the opposite of that. He doesn't ask if you will. He sees he's willing. He says, if you can, if you can do anything, could you maybe have compassion? I see your compassion. I see you're willing. So if you can, will you heal my son? I mean, we have to, we have to wonder why is why is all this still going on? Jesus certainly can. Why not just do it already? Maybe it's like the blind man in John 9 who experienced blindness from birth just so that Jesus could have this opportunity 
to demonstrate the power of God to deliver him. And maybe it's that. Or maybe there's something more significant to address here. The crux of the passage is following this request, can you do anything? Or if you can do anything, have compassion and help us. And Jesus answers him, if you can, same response I had, wait a minute, certainly can. All things are possible for one who believes. It's like he's saying, did you just ask me if I can? Of course I can. It's the, the sovereign king of the universe. He's created everything. Jesus has put galaxies above their heads that they won't even discover for 1900 years. Only to display the, the, the amazing power and majesty of the creator. They're harboring power, galaxies beyond what we can imagine, their size and, and how much space they take and the power that's whirling about in them and black holes and stars above them. This is the creator of all things. He has the power to do whatever he wants. There's not a dust particle floating through the desert right now that he doesn't know about. This is the God of all things. Of course he can. This, this way of thinking the, the wind coming up his trachea, the vocal cords vibrating, the, the, the shape of his mouth to voice this doubt is made possible by the one he's doubting. Do we see the absurdity of the question? Of course he can. And so that's not what needs to be addressed. The problem isn't, is Jesus willing? The problem isn't, is he able? The problem here is human disbelief. It's the failure to have faith. It's the failure to know that he can. Because he can always do anything. And he will always be able to do everything. If Jesus can cast out the demon though, with a word or less, why hasn't he? Casting out a demon or evoking the faith that's necessary are completely different matters and disbelief of Jesus, whether from the scribes or from the crowd or from the disciples or from this desperate father, doesn't matter your emotional state or your way of thinking, any amount of disbelief is greater opposition and a more serious obstacle to the gospel than all of hell, than any amount of demons. The greatest obstacle to the gospel is disbelief. So the problem before them is human unbelief. But no fear, all things are possible to one who believes. Verse 24, immediately the father realizes what Jesus is addressing. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. We've got to appreciate this man's humble honesty. He's essentially saying, I have faith, but it's weak. I trust you, but help me trust you more despite how much I'm not believing this is possible. I, I think you can. I'm pretty sure you can. I, look, I'll even say you can, but I know there's still some doubt. And we'll come back to this idea because it's, it's really the point of it all. In verse 25, we see Jesus respond. And, and when Jesus saw that a crowd had come running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit and saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit. Jesus knows it's deaf apparently also. I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. 
And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse. So then most of them said, he's dead. Jesus responds to the faith of the father. The boy did nothing here. The story's not even about the boy. He responds to the faith of the father and he casts out the demon with finalities. Never enter him again. And then he convulses terribly. And appears to be dead. So this brings us to our initial question. If Jesus is good, he's demonstrating compassion, he's demonstrating power, why not deliver the boy a little more easily? Why the violent convulsing? He has power, right? He's sovereign over everything, right? He's good, right? And why... The continued suffering. Why put this boy through one, once again another attack from his demon? Why give the father this moment of fear and then to leave the boy looking dead? These are fair questions. Why so violent? And I believe these graphic depictions of violence all throughout Scripture are necessary for us. To see the violence of sin. To see the violence of evil. The Bible depicts these things so specifically. Warning us of this life destroying, destructive evil. The sin in this world that attacks us. The sin that indwells in us. That would destroy us like this demon is seeking to destroy this boy. Why do bad things happen? Because we have a problem. We don't see evil as evil. In fact, we're attracted to it. We desire evil. We don't see it that way because a man lusting isn't desiring to destroy his life. He's not hoping to crush his wife and abandon his children. A man lusting thinks he's after something good. He's attracted to evil. Someone who is gossiping with a good Christian friend in the name of a prayer request, bless his heart isn't desiring to destroy someone's life, trying to start a vicious rumor that would tear apart a family and and cause tension in relationships. They're desiring to to possess secret information because it feels good. And we don't see it that way. A, A child taking a cookie out of a cookie jar, knowing his parents told him not to, isn't thinking, one day I'm going to grow up and rebel against authority so I can spend my life in prison. He's thinking cookies taste good. He's not fearing childhood obesity. He's thinking, I would love to fill my stomach with this delicious cookie. I don't care what my parents think. They must be against me having a good time. This lying and manipulating and cheating we do in life to benefit ourselves, we're not thinking it's going to destroy people. It's going to hurt people. It's going to cause racism. It's going to cause abortion. It's, it's going to make suffering worse. We're not thinking that in the moment. We're thinking it's satisfying. It's good. I'm going after it because we're foolish, because we're unbelievers. Because we don't see Jesus is with us. He satisfies More than any of this garbage. (sighs) (sighs) 
We need, we need pictures of destructive evil. We need suffering. In order for us to see how good our God is. So why such a bizarre story? Violent stories in scripture. Because sin is always destructive. Its aim is always destruction. Evil is always evil, even when it seems good at the beginning. We need to understand that sin temporarily satisfies and then it destroys. It's never good. It never produces life. It never leads us towards what's good and right and true. Therefore, it always is dangerous. It's always destructive. We're just blind to it. It always leads to death. So this boy violently convulsing on the ground, laid there appearing dead like a corpse, so much so that people saw it and thought he's dead. But that is nothing compared to the violent death of our Savior. There's nothing, no amount of suffering in this world, through the history of the world, if you could somehow bottle it together, compares to the massive amount of suffering that the one man who didn't deserve it suffered on the cross. Because he bore the wrath of all of us. All of us deserving. He bore the wrath of everyone who would believe. God poured out wrath on Jesus that all of us deserve. And he bore it and he absorbed it and he overcame it. And he resurrected himself from the dead. Conquering sin and death. Putting sin and death to death. So that he could raise us to life. And because of the power to do that here with this boy. Though he appeared to be dead in verse, verse 27. With great compassion Jesus took him by the hand. And the literal translation of this next part. Raised him and he was resurrected. And it can be seen here. That the evil power that brings violence and pain and death. And the power of God through faith in Jesus brings life. Just as it seemed after the crucifixion, death had won. The power of the resurrection overcame. In verse 25, the crowds were drawing near. There's plenty of people to observe this phenomenon. And not to mention the, the unnamed boy is read about in our Bibles today, the most sold book in the history of the world. This, this boy, who the story's not even about, has demonstrated the most profound thing in the history of the world. That God has power over everything. And he has put an end to evil that would seek to destroy us through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He's conquered the things that overwhelm us. We not only have him, 
He's given us one another to bear with one another. The church is essential. We are the body of Christ and he is our head. All things possible as each one of us as individuals believe. And as we come together as a church to profess this belief and to celebrate this God, to live on mission for his glory. But the church in this story is still kind of missing it. So Jesus takes them aside. The disciples in verse 28. He enters a house with them as he often does. And his disciples ask privately, why could we not cast it out? Which is a good question. We tried. We did our best. You gave us power back in chapter 6. They didn't say that. Give us authority to do this. We've done it before. We were doing everything right. And he answers them. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Some translations say prayer and fasting. The, the older and more accurate translations leave that part out. And I think it's, it's good for us not to include it. But prayer is the emphasis here. The failure of the disciples has led them to asking an important question. What do we do wrong? And it would, it would seem that if Jesus was able, he could have just let them do it. Like, even though he was off on the mountain, they were down there trying their best. He knows what's going on. It seems like he could just, just for their self-esteem, let them, let them do it, right? I mean, it, it would have saved them a lot of embarrassment at the least. It, it would save them the argument from the scribes. It, it, would have, it would save this father from another and another attack and it would, it would have saved the, the moments that they had to wait after he looked dead. I mean, it would have saved them from a lot of confusion and suffering. This conversation he has to have with them later about it. He could have just let them do it. It seems like a good way to think about it, but it would not have taught them any lesson. Rather, there was something more important for them to learn. And so I'm, I'm kind of curious with the disciples... Why not? But this mysterious answer that he gives them, you can only get rid of this one with prayer. This kind is only, you can only get rid of them with prayer. Let's move on. It's not, it's not to them as confusing as it might be to us. You can't, but I can, is what he's saying. You, you're unable, but I am able. In Matthew 17, 20, Jesus answers the same question a little bit differently. He says, because of your little faith, just like the father, you didn't have faith. For truly, I say to you, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, which is incredibly small, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Maybe you've heard this before. You didn't notice, maybe you didn't know it was connected to this story, but he's making a point that it doesn't take a lot of faith. It takes positioning your faith right and you're going to need to pray to do that. In order to put your faith in Jesus, the emphasis here is the same. Prayer, faith, it's the same. What is missing is dependence on the one who can do something. We're unable, but Jesus is able. The disciples should have responded to this man. We can't do that, but we know who can. There's a God who has great power who can deliver your son because he's over all creation. And they didn't even pray. I don't know what they were doing. Like, get out of there, you mean demon. Get out of here. What were they doing? It's like, it's like us. It's like the church. What are we doing? 
If we're not dependent on Jesus, if we don't see the reason for us assembling together, if we don't see the mission before us, what are we doing? Why are we putting on specials to worship people in the midst of a Sunday morning that's meant to worship Jesus? Why are we having our special events away from the world so that we can create a safe environment? What are we doing? Why are we claiming that there's this mystical power that we can hear special things from God that's outside of the Bible and when we teach people to hear from God and however you want to hear from Him, whatever He says to you is true, what are we doing? What is the purpose of all of this? How have we gotten so far off track building giant buildings? I mean, there's so many things that selfishly I want to condemn because it's ridiculous to me. But if not for Jesus, because I know no matter how we fail, no matter what perspective you have, no matter how you think the church should be organized, no matter what you think the mission of the church is, no matter what you teach on a Sunday morning, no matter how big your church building is, how fun your kids ministry is, no matter what events you offer, if not for Jesus. So I'm not condemning things, but it's a fair question to ask. What are we doing? Why are we having this event? Why are we building this building? If it's not dependent on Jesus, I don't know the hearts of every church, but I know the crossing more than we desire anything is the glory of our God dependent on the Spirit to move and to work and to save. And if we get off of that at any time, Lord, kill this church. If we lose our focus if we lose our dependence on the only one who's able, we, we don't even need to be around anymore. So on the contrary, the father who doubted did have sincere faith. It was very, very small. Perhaps the size of a mustard seed, but he had it. And Jesus delivered his son and he became a believer not because he was able to muster up the right amount of faith. Not because he built a sufficient amount of faith, but because he placed his insufficient amount of faith in the sufficient Savior. Because he saw that Jesus is able. And the Father doesn't, doesn't expect the disciples to be able because they failed. He doesn't expect the doctors to solve it anymore because they failed. And Jesus will never fail. So this distinction here, not the, the quantity of faith, but the, the position of our faith, the, the tiniest amount of it, the object of our faith brings about salvation. And so we need to really understand what exactly this faith is. And so and we're unable, he's able, the gospel's true. We, we're trying to point people to what's true. And, and when we see that we're not good enough, we have to turn to one who is good enough. And we call it good news. But the good news starts with this very point. We're unable. We can't do it. We don't save ourselves. So what is faith? Faith is believing Jesus is able. He is who he says he is. He will do what he says he's going to do. Faith is based on the fact that he has done everything necessary. Faith is trusting in the truth. It's not complicated. It's not, it's not going to require you to, to grit your teeth and dig in your heels and break a sweat. In fact, it's simple. 
It's trusting the one who can. Not trying hard, harder to do it yourself. A few weeks ago, Brendan and I were talking with a guy from Nepal who was raised by Hindus and uh, he's decided himself he's agnostic. Uh, he's in America as a student at ULM. And he has never really thought through where to put hope. Like, I was amazed. I've never asked that question. So what do you, where do you put your hope? And someone answered, I never really thought about it. And so he, we talked through some reasons why you kind of have to have hope. Everyone has to have hope in something. And, and we ultimately discovered he kind of puts his hope in family. And, and his, he has a good brother. He's really close with his brother. And, it, and so we went to the extreme of if your brother were to die, what would you do? Where would your hope be then? And then he said, well, my mom and dad. And I was like, okay, well, you realize we could keep going, but everything can be taken from you. So where do you put your hope in a place that's sure? And I use an analogy in that moment that I just thought of because I'd heard it long ago of sitting in a chair. Faith is as simple as sitting in a chair. I mean, none of you, I don't think, got in here, got in on your hands and knees and examined the, the structural integrity of your seat, like pushed down a little bit and applied a little weight and a little more weight and eventually rested in the chair, right? Anybody do that? That would be weird. <laughs> because you trusted that chair was going to hold your weight, right? Because chairs usually do. And maybe some unfortunate day, a chair doesn't. And you sprawl out, embarrassed. Didn't hurt that bad, but the embarrassment is pain enough. Because that chair failed you. And we, we understand that this is ridiculous, and it's kind of trivial, but we understand what it feels like to trust something. As simple as sitting in a chair. And no seat is going to last for eternity. At some point, chairs fall apart. Maybe after that one time you fell, the next time you do, like, just check it out, just to be sure. And you probably still don't like examine it or anything, but just make sure. This chair is going to hold me. Wiggle it back and forth. I've done that. We just want to make sure. What's wonderful about Jesus is we never have to do that. He's the most solid thing who's eternally past and eternally future. He's always there. Nothing can take him from you. And it's as simple as sitting in a chair. Faith isn't testing it out. And we have doubts, but it's simple. It's rest. It's sit down. It's believe. Take a deep breath and trust that he's going to hold you. Because he's got you. He's never failed. Incredible record. And he never will. So unlike the temporal chairs, the, the family, the job, the income, the house you love so much, the car you drive, the people in your life, unlike the temporal things, Jesus is always faithful. He always can. And so to have faith is to rest in knowing that that's true. Let's take a moment just to be reflective. If you want, you can close your eyes, but you don't have to. I just want to really examine. This really is about the church, but it's also about this, the individual. All right? The faith that saves you is individual faith. Gift of God. So in case for you this morning you don't feel that faith, you don't feel God save you, you don't feel like you can rest and trust Him, just talk to Him. 
He's there. He's listening. He's beckoning you. Just like him showing up on the scene, he's drawing you to him because he's amazing. So go to him. Be amazed. And if you trust him, but there's things in your life you're not trusting to him, repent. See that you can trust him. Give him all of you. And know that it's far better than trusting the things in this world. It satisfies far more than anything can satisfy. Deny the lie that sin and evil can be satisfying. Because it can't be. And in our struggle to believe, confess as this Father has. Father, we are unbelievers. In many respects, we believe, but we don't believe. So help us. We are nothing without Jesus. He's gracious and He's compassionate and He's done everything necessary. And He has suffered far more than anything as an empathetic Savior, knowing your pain. He knows it intimately. He knows your struggle. He knows your fear. He knows your insecurity. He has felt it all. And He's, he's taken on the wrath of God against everything that would cause you to feel that way. And he's absorbed it all. And He's been risen victorious. And so you can trust in Him. Do you believe that? I think we do. But still, we have unbelief. And so let's pray. Father, let us not be guilty of failing to pray. Of failing to trust You more than we trust our skills and abilities. And We've done it before, so why can't we do it this time? Lord, we just want to do things perfectly. We want to appear to be good. We want everyone to think, oh, they're awesome. Jesus must be awesome. But Lord, let us see that it's more important for us to admit we fail and we suffer and we have unbelief, but our God never fails. Our Savior is always faithful. And so together we can trust Him. And God, at the same request, give us more energy. Let us trust more. Let us give you more of us to fight harder, to sacrifice more, to take more risk, to live for your glory, to see the mission is worth it, that all that are lost would be saved. God, I know that we're not guaranteed satisfaction. We're not guaranteed rest in this world. But let us always be satisfied in you. Let us always have joy knowing that it's worth it. Let the the philosophical thought that you are for our good. So even in the suffering, it's for our good. Give us deep joy. But more than that, God, let the knowledge of Christ as our Savior who has suffered far more than us for our sake, give us deep joy. And we are guaranteed to discover you are enough, even in the midst of our unbelief. Praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.